Welcome to Mindharma, real conversations about what really matters. Hi everyone, Saif Joyce here. Our next guest on the Mindharma podcast is Guy Boland. Guy survived a light plane crash near Moree Airport in March 2011 that killed his parents and older sister. The pilot of the six-seater plane was also killed. Guy suffered life-threatening injuries while his daughter Hannah was seriously hurt. Guy had more than 25 operations in hospital over the following years. He managed to recover enough to take over the running of the farming and petroleum businesses that his parents had managed around Moree. Guy runs those operations, splitting his time from his home in Brisbane and Moree. Guy's story is one of amazing resilience. In 2018, he climbed Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania with his eldest son. Every year, Guy also joins a group of friends he went to Sydney University with in the late 1980s to go bushwalking, usually in Tasmania. One of those friends is Dean Yates, host of this podcast. We acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their ancestors, elders and Aboriginal leaders, past, present and emerging. Digger, welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks, Yaiti. I should first explain to listeners that I call you Digger, a nickname you were given at university because your father's name was uh, Digby. Digger, can you tell me a little bit about the Boland family prior to the tragic plane crash on March 30, 2011? Oh, Yaiti, they were beautiful. Uh, I had a beautiful family. Uh, Mum and Dad were, you know, very vivacious. Dad was a was an entrepreneur. He um, he ran a you know started with not much in Moree and 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 other than a sort of a, a boarding school education and and didn't necessarily pass too many of those exams. He was one of these guys that was high on life and uh, and you know we we had a very social fun you know uh, family. I have three beautiful big sisters growing up and. Uh, and yeah, it was a hard-working family that was, you know, well known in Moree in northern New South Wales. But it was, um, yeah, full of love and laughter, and uh, you know, it was, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a great, great upbringing. Hard work, plenty of hard work, but um, yeah, it was just a beautiful family. Really, quite lucky to have one. Talk me through uh, that day on March 30, 2011. What you, your, your mum and dad, Digby and Robin, as well as your older sister Michelle and your daughter Hannah had been doing? So um, mum and dad um, had a mixed business. There was a fuel distribution business as well as um, uh, some farms that they had and, and dad loved everything. Um, and so we had, uh, they had, and I worked with mum and dad for 20 odd years building their business, but it was... Um, they had a lot of cattle out on a Gisman and Brewarana and uh, the flood plain, the flood had come through and there was feed, you know, two feet high. And so we, uh, we uh, needed to go out and check them because they were marking on the calves. And so we organised, um, dad was, dad and mum were getting older and, and initially it was just going to be dad and I uh, heading out to have a look. And then I said to him, look, dad, it's so far and you're getting stiff and why don't we hire a plane and, you know, we, we can make a day of it and and mum being true to form when she kind of knew that you know I was going out with dad she was like oh well you know can I come as well and then next thing you know um, Shelley was living up on our farm in the hills and dad said oh I think we should make a day of it let's let's um let's 
you know, get Shelley down. And, and because my daughter Hannah was staying with me and Maury um, for that weekend, you know, I sort of rang around and found that there was enough room in the plane. So we thought, no, oh, let's, let's, uh, let's all go out and, you know, have a good day. So Phil Jones was the pilot and Phil was a lovely man. And he, um, he loved, uh, uh, basically he had a great plane and he loved flying his plane and, and he would come with us and we'd go and went and had a look around uh, at the cattle out there. And then we had a look at a property to see if we could do some more adjustment and went through Bawarana and went and had a look at the, the famous Aboriginal fish traps there at Bawarana. And, um, yeah, we just had a fantastic day. You know, we, uh, we stopped at a little cafe and had something to eat and, you know, it was just Shelley had packed a picnic. So we had picnic lunch way out on the, the banks of the Kalgoa and it was just, just a fun day. It was a great day. Something didn't feel right as you were coming in to land at uh, Moree. What, what happened? Um, it, it was actually, there was nothing wrong with the plane. There was, uh, I just remember, we were coming in to, to land and, and I, years ago, previously, I'd sort of um, learnt to fly. So I sort of looked out and thought, yeah, everything's okay as we we're coming in on final. And it was about eight o'clock at night and it was really dark. The moon hadn't come up and the sun had just set, so it's probably the darkest point. And I was just chatting to Dad, saying, "Look, you know, we're a fraction late. We, um, you know, wanted to order some takeaway on the on the way home." And so I was sitting in the back of the plane. Um, I was sitting next to Mum. She was at the back, and I was Dad was facing me, and Hannah was sitting next to Dad, and Shelley was up the front next to Phil. And I sort of looked out the window after I'd literally. This is probably a second and a half before the crash. I looked out the window and I just said, oh, gee, we're, we're low as we flew over a, a, the local machinery dealership in Moree, which is called Chesterfield. And I thought, oh, gee, we're low. And I never thought, gee, we're going to crash. I just thought, we're low. And, and the thing was that there was no stress. No one knew we were going to crash. So there was, the plane had a very, it was a single engine plane, lovely plane, but it had a very high cowling on it. And, um, and I think, um, look, it was just a tragedy. And, and Phil, the pilot, just the plane got a little bit low. There was no stress. No one knew. And we, we basically um, hit a tree as we were coming into land. And the plane flipped over, as in over the wings. And we literally just went straight into the ground upside down. So it was, um, there was just no chance. So it was, uh, I think we were coming into land at about, I don't know what it is, about 150, 60 or 70 kilometres an hour and we hit the ground and we pulled up within 15 centimetres. So it was, uh, that's, a, that's a sudden stop at that speed. Yeah, yeah. It looked uh, gaty. I should never have – I shouldn't be here, mate. I shouldn't, have, shouldn't be having this uh, conversation with you. And so the reality was that, yeah, I remember waking up in the plane. I remember – I only remember asking two things. I remember asking um, – my daughter Hannah, if she was okay, and uh, look, I know my personality. I know I would have asked everybody, but the reality is, I think the body only allows you to remember the things that you. It, you know, uh, uh, I think it has a, some way of protecting itself, and I only remember asking Hannah, and she said she was okay, and and because we were upside down in the plane, I just kept saying when the emergency service people came, and it was pitch black, I just. 
just remember saying, you know, can you can you cut the seatbelt? It's cutting me in half. Can you just cut the seatbelt? And so obviously I was hanging from the roof. And uh, the reality was that mum and dad, being in their late seventies, uh, you know, that sort of impact was they were they basically instantaneously passed away. And and with Shelley and Phil up the front, they they really had no no chance of survival. So it was it was um, it was. Uh, I, I remember someone later, you know, there's plenty of stories that come out, but someone came out of the darkness and, and I remember, or they told me the story that uh, I said to them, um, you know, can you, can you get Hannah out of the plane and can you turn off the fuel? All I could remember is turn the fuel off because I don't want this thing to explode. And then I remember the emergency services guys turned up and I just kept saying, cut the seatbelt, cut the seatbelt. And they said, oh, we have, we have, we've cut it. And I just said, oh, just, just take my seat, take my belt off. Like it's, it's really painful. But anyway, they, they managed to get, we, we hit the ground at about eight at night. Um, it was just incredibly lucky that, that I, I woke up. I was going in and out of consciousness, obviously. And uh, I got to the hospital. A couple of years later, I'd gone back to the hospital to try and just say, you know, how do you how do you thank people for for working on you when you're in times of need? And I said to the doctors, just explain to me what happened. And they said, do you remember what you said when you came into the hospital? And I said, Look, was it cut the seatbelt or do something? Cut the belt? And he said, no. He said, you said to me you couldn't breathe. And I said, what do you mean I couldn't breathe? And he said, your lungs were just full of blood. So it was. You know, and, and he said, we were in control for about three minutes. And then after that, he said, we were completely and utterly out of control. So your blood pressure had just collapsed and, and that was it. That was, uh, I should never have woken up. Tell me a little bit about that because there was a surgeon at uh, Maury District Hospital called Dr. Irene Kaiboni from Zimbabwe who was on duty. She saved your life, right? I ate she did. She... Uh, as I said, I should never have woken up. The reality was that there's, um, because there were literally so many injuries, the, there was, you know, there was, I was bleeding on the brain. I was um, from the whiplash, you know, I had so many broken bones, arms and, and shoulders and wrists. Um, there was, you know, there was, the lungs were full of blood. There was bleeding on my chest and, and then what really was the most life-threatening was um, the seatbelt had effectively cut me in half even though it hadn't cut the skin. It had ripped my intestines apart and so I was, you know, I was effectively just bleeding internally and, and yeah, I was, um, you know, the, the, the mixture and she literally, with her training from Zimbabwe and really she, she is credited saving my life she literally recognized what the problem was she recognized that that I had stomach injuries and she you know there's I mean it's a team the reality was that you've got a, a, a qualified country anaesthetist doctor there who's trying to keep me alive while she's literally just got a scalpel she's cut me from a you know from a pubic hairs to my chest cavity and she's literally just put a miner's helmet with like a light on and she's um She's just pulled all my intestines out of my, my stomach and just put them on the table next to me and she's inside my chest cavity just trying to stop the, the, the bleeding. 
um, and and she, I don't know how long she worked on me. And the fact is, I think that the Maury Hospital, that the system, luckily for me, had had uh, the week or two before just simulated a, a plane crash in Maury. Mm. And so they had blood coming from all the country towns around. So that all the, the and and they were just screaming for more blood, and and they were. As the as they were pumping the blood into me, the blood was pumping out of me. So it was, uh, and so this lady literally worked on me for hours. Just every time they thought they stabilised my blood pressure, when they went to move me, it'd start leaking out from somewhere else, and you know my blood pressure would collapse. And and so she'd jump back up on the table and put her head back in my chest and try and start stitching more spots and. And the amazing thing about that woman is that when she, uh, when she, um, when she stabilised me, she then thought about the quality of my life. She then proceeded to go through my bowel and cut the sections that were so damaged out and started stapling the other sections back together. So that she said that you know she had this thought that one of these days he might be out of his he reconnected so uh, so my bowel was uh i basically um anyway that was that's what happened on that night wow that is just incredible digger um it, it's just yeah leaves me speechless to think of the the care you got at, at a country hospital in australia um just amazing <laughs> well it was it was there was no one person it was a system that worked and mm. can i just say that I'm so grateful that we live in Australia and that when any Australian needs emergency health care, they get it and they throw absolutely everything at you. And that's what happened to me on that night. So yeah, well. it's, uh, but I'm literally, as my, my uncle Stu, he's a surgeon, Dr. Stuart Boland, he, uh, he said to me, guys, he said, um, there are very few people who knew what to do or would have known what what to do that she knew and there were even less people who would have known how to do it and she said and he said to me but the fact that she knew what to do and knew how to do it was was a miracle so she saved my life amazing digger about uh, 10 days after the crash funerals were held in Maury for your mum your dad and and sister Shelley and there was something like two or 3,000 mourners there. You'd just come out of an induced coma in the John Hunter Hospital in Newcastle, so you couldn't go. But you met many of those mourners in the months and years later. How did that help the healing process for you and for the townsfolk? Uh, look, I think, I think the reality where mum and dad were such, um, you know, they were, they were quite high-profile personalities in a small town, small country town. Um, and my sister Shelley, she was so vibrant and beautiful, and and I wasn't aware of any of this. But my two sisters, Nikki and and Marty, and and then all the extended family, were so conscious of wanting to have some sort of a funeral that that you know was good for all of them, um, and so that that one of them wasn't going to be overpowered by the other, and and no one had any idea how big it was going to be, and to accommodate two to three thousand people, and and to try and the, the, the amazing thing about, I'm, I'm not that religious, but the amazing thing about the Catholic Church and this particular priest in Moree, 
um, at the time is that he was there was no way that he was not going to allow my mum not to be married not to be buried with my dad and my sister because mum wasn't a Catholic, and so you know he said not a chance she's going to be she's her funeral is going to be in you know in the church with with mum and dad and uh, with dad and and with Shelley and and to try and answer your question is once I finally got better and would go back to Moree it was. There were so many people that that were still hurting and so sad about it and just what had happened to the family. And, and I think when I was able to tell them that a couple of things happened. One was that they you could see that they needed to talk and so therefore I sort of would engage the conversation. And one of the messages that I'd try and get across is that, you know, no one knew. Phil didn't know we were going to crash. Mum and Dad didn't know we were going to crash. Shelley had no idea we were going to crash. And I think that gave them a lot of comfort to know that there was no stress in the plane. Um, and it certainly gave me a lot of stress, a uh, lot of comfort to know that, you know, no one suffered. So, Yeah. Mate, um, just uh, you, you were mentioning some of your injuries that you sustained and, and actually a, a really close mate of yours, Dale Greer, uh, who's an anaesthetist at Orange District Hospital. He was by your bed at John Hunter in Newcastle for many weeks and he kept some diaries he notes in the diaries that it took the doctors at John Hunter weeks to discover all of those injuries. What for you was the worst injury in those initial months? Um, well, there's, that can be split into two sections. The first one is um, is physical injuries, and there's obviously physical injuries, and the, the the second one is emotional injuries. the The emotional one was probably you know, there's so much going on. I, I lost half my family that night. You know, I uh, lost my parents. I lost my sister. And, and I kind of knew in the coma for whatever reason, I'd, you know, you, you're such in a such induced drug phase that you, you don't know what's real. But I'd kind of worked out that there was no way that mum and dad could have possibly survived. Um, but I, I honestly felt that Shelley had. And I think the, uh, you know, that that was the tragedy really was, was that she was killed. But so I've kind of lost track of the question there, but it was, um, what, so yeah, okay, so physically and emotionally, well, obviously, emotionally, I mean, you're sad, you're empty, you're, you're euphoric that you're alive. You're, the process there was I actually had to decide myself whether I, whether I was in for the fight, you know, everyone was there. My sisters were there. My, you know, Fee, my wife was there. Um, my kids turned up. You know, Dale was there. My mates from uni were there. But at, at the end of the day, I kind of worked out early on that if I didn't have my head in the game and try and understand how I could do all the things that were going to help me get better, then. You know, that was the first thing. It was either I was in for the fight or I wasn't. So that was, you know, step one. And then after that, you know, obviously family are critical, friends are critical, um, you know, physical stimulation is critical, mental stimulation is critical. You know, I couldn't read, I couldn't, you know, it's it's just a. I had to develop patience because you just day after day after day, you know, you just, it's a laborious, difficult, yeah, you know, it, it was hard, but it was. Um, I don't know. 
that answers the question, but it's... Yeah, no, it does, Digger. I mean, to, to get really specific there, you, you, you had about six weeks after the crash, uh, a doctor said that you might never swallow again. That was a real setback for you, uh, wasn't it? Can, can you talk me through how that, you know, how that unfolded? Yeah, so, so Yatesy, basically what happened was um, the first couple of weeks, you, you put a trachea in your throat, so they're, they're trying to suck any fluid out of your chest and your lungs so you don't get infections, and it helps your breathing, and you've got a, a tube going up in your nose, and that goes down into your stomach so that they, they can you know, put medication into your stomach and they can feed you, and, and you know, you've got drains and you've got colostomy bags and ileostomy bags so you know you've got and my stomach was still all open so that they left it all open because it was so swollen and and so you you know you've got this all your intestines are all sitting there and you know you can't get out of bed you you know you you really you're really 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 sick and and then what happens is they they wanted to get the trachea out and they wanted to um, wanted me to start. They were thinking that I should be able to start eating and drinking. So, you know, me being me and, and it, I sort of had this policy that if I would listen to the doctors and if I, if they could explain it to me, what the, what the, the problem was, and if I could effectively put brackets around the problem, and get that into my head and then I could ask them, well, what's the best thing to do and what's the worst thing to do? And then I could sort of aim for the best thing. That was, you know, I, I would try and do that. And um, so what happened was that they took the trachea out and then for whatever reason, I was meant to be able to normally you, 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 you sip on thick fluids is the process. And what was happening is I would swallow and it would go down into my lungs and and then I'd cough and carry on and, you know, and I was trying to put on a brave face. So I'd sort of, you know, they'd come back and check how much I was able to swallow and, and how much of the fluid I'd had. So what I worked out, if I sort of had took three or four or five, took a big breath and then took three or four or five big mouthfuls of stuff, I'd sort of swallow as much as I could. And then I'd cough like hell and it'd all come back out of my lungs. And so I was trying to convince them that I was okay, but clearly I wasn't. And that's when we worked out. So basically what happened then was I just, we didn't know it at the time, but I'd go to sleep and, and I was, every two or three minutes I'd wake up because effectively saliva was going into my lungs and, and I'd cough and therefore, so I'd gone through this phase of day after day where I'm getting sleep deprived and, and I'm mentally fatigued by trying, you know, with all the stuff that was going on and I'm emotional and I'm sad and I'm, and I was just really struggling and, and we're sort of week four or five or whenever it was. And, and everyone sort of, you know, the, the immediate aftermath of people have all sort of come and then they've gone. And then there's this period of, of sort of lull where even though there was lots of people coming, it was still, was still a sort of a, a lonely low time and and because of this aspiration they sent me down for this ear nose and throat inspection and they put this thing up through your nose and go down through your your throat and basically because I was fatigued and tired and, and mentally exhausted and all those sort of things the this guy just made the comment he just said 
you'll never eat or drink again. Like wow. you, you will never eat or drink again. And I just, you know, I, I was just, I don't know. It just, there was a point where I just went, you know, I actually gave up, you know, I, I just rang Fee and I just said, look, I, I can't do this. I, yeah. um, I can't do it. I, I, uh, I, there was too much. It was just too much. It was, you know, I never wanted, I didn't know if I was going to be able to walk again. Mm. I didn't, I couldn't imagine that I, you know, anyway. So what, what happened next? You, you know, I know this is tough for you, mate, and we can take a break anytime you want, but you're okay um, to keep going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 What happened next? Your your um your other your your physician, the the bloke who was looking after you, intervened, didn't he? And he wasn't happy. Yeah, so my my doctor, he uh, Chino Bendinelli, is a wonderful man out of Newcastle Hospital, and and uh, I, well, basically, what happened is I think phone call back to Brisbane to say that I couldn't I couldn't do it. Um, <laughs> Fiona rang Dale and rang Freaky and, and rang uh, Tim Stanley and rang the, the guys from college. And, and to put it into perspective, you know, these are, these are mates of mine that, you know, for whatever reason, years had gone past and we'd sort of lost contact. But all of a sudden they developed this roster where every day one of them was going to be in my hospital and they, were, they would come in and they'd read poetry or they'd, they'd you know massage my feet or they'd massage my hands or they'd you know they'd come in and tell me stories or we'd try and have a game of cards or it was just something to try and help me through the day and and they had this incredible roster and and uh anyway the uh, the wheels fell off and this chino just basically got the uh the ear nose and throat specialist and by that guy telling me that i I was never going to eat or drink again. He basically took my hope away. And so by taking your hope away, you give up, right? Mm. And so, you know, I remember there's a photo and I, I often, years later, I went to a symposium with about 500 doctors there and trying to see if I could ever get my stomach uh, stitched back up. And I showed this photo and I said, guys, this is a photo of when you take someone's hope away. And there was a photo where... Freaky or Nick Todd and Dale and Tim Stanley and and I think Berger might have been there and they they managed to get me into the wheelchair and they took me outside and they were sitting outside and I'm 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 not in a good space I'm I'm not I wasn't in a good headspace I had literally given up anyway Chino the next day had basically organised for the specialist in nose and throat guy to come in and do a re- another examination. And he sat there and they put the thing up through my nose again and back down through my throat. And because of the whiplash, it had crushed the cranial nerves in my neck, which has effectively caused all this, caused this paralysis in my throat. And I couldn't swallow. And, and this specialist had got the same young man who had told me that I'd never eat or drink again. He basically, in a loud voice, basically said, look, there's movement there and there's movement there and there, yes there's nerve damage but there's no reason why the nerves shouldn't regrow and all that guy did was gave me hope and so that was that was a turning point you know it was uh he gave me hope and then those bloody mates of mine turning up and 
dragging me outside and making me yeah. see the trees blowing in the wind. And anyway, it was uh, it's the story. And so, and and I, I understand that you ended up being able to swallow almost by accident several weeks later. Uh, this is now nearly three months after the crash. Can you just can you tell me what happened there? Well, do you want the long story or the short story? But but oh, the long take, and the let's short. Let's take the it, short story. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sorry. So so uh, basically, uh, because you couldn't swallow, they would give you drugs to stop your saliva. So all of a sudden, they um. I could now sleep because I wasn't the saliva wasn't going down into my throat and my chest and my lungs. But because you could still taste, so I got fixated on on lemon juice and orange juice, and I'd take this little thimble of lemon juice and swish around my mouth, and then I'd have to spit it out. But I could still taste the lemon juice, and I could taste the orange juice, and I did that for hours and hours and hours. I became fixated on this because it was I don't know why. Anyway, but, but the ear, nose and throat guy told me that he had heard of people getting their throat in the right direction where one would go down. And so I'd, in the middle of the night, I'd have this little thimble of, you know, next to the bed and I'd fill it up with a little bit of water and I got all the machines connected to me and the nurses are in the nursing station and everyone's meant to be asleep and I'd wake up and I'd sit up on the side of the bed and I'd turn my head in a sort of a crazy angle and I'd try and take a big breath and try and swallow this little symbol of water. I don't know why, and I did, and the first one went, but it came up and I coughed and spluttered everywhere and all the nurses came running and, you know, Digger, you're right. And I, yeah, yeah, you know, nothing's wrong. You know? And then the next night I tried again. And Anyway, one night I got one that went down and I didn't cough. And I went, well, if I can get one down, I should be able to get another one down. Like that was like a glass ceiling that was breaking. And so I'm still in Newcastle Hospital when that happened, was there for nine weeks, and then they flew me, put me back into a small plane, which in itself is an interesting... Right. Um, so they flew me to Brisbane, right? So I'm now in the Brisbane Hospital, and this, just by sheer chance, this beautiful lady comes in, a speech pathologist, and she goes, no, I, I reckon we can put um, we can put some electrodes on you. You, you know, your Adam's apple's dropped a little bit, and you're this is that, and I think we can... I think we can stimulate that. So we put these electrodes on my throat, for, you know, and she'd just wind it up and I'd sitting there getting, and she'd, you know, be sort of half an hour the first time and then an hour the next time. And, and she said, I, I want you to have a drink of water. And I said, are you ready for this? You're probably going to wear it, you know, and I cocked my head into that little crazy position that I'd found. And she said, no, no, sit up straight, you know, chin up. And I put this little thimble of water and, and it went down and, and again, she gave me hope. And so all of a sudden there was this theme of, wow, okay, I can get better here. This was another glass ceiling that was collapsed. And, and so it was months and months and months. Um, and I, so the crash was in March, so it was about September. And I was just getting to the point where I was in rehab and, and they were allowing me to go out on a Sunday for about two hours and Fiona and the kids had come and picked me up and it just coincided with Nick and Soph, Todd Hunter and Dale Greer uh, flying up to Brisbane for that weekend just to see how I was. We were all going out to lunch that afternoon. And this, so I'm in the rehab room and, you know, I'm only 42 and everyone else is sort of a fair bit older and, and there's four of us in the room and, and I could hear this lovely old lady across the hallway on a Sunday morning getting her, her uh, communion. And so... I'm um, 
I thought, I don't know why I did it. All I've at this point in time just been able to take the smallest amount of sips of water and been having on this electrolysis, this this whole sort of gnarly nun was delivering it. And so I just sort of timed my walk, come out of my little you know, area that was behind the curtains and she was walking out from this lovely old lady. And I said, oh, can I, can I get onto your, your list for next week, you know, for, for communion? I'm not that religious, but it was just something that I did. And she said, no, no, we're going to do it right now. I went, Jesus, I'm far out, I'm not ready for this. So I'm, I'm telling Fee and, and, and Dale and Nick and Soph and all my kids as we're out at lunch that, that afternoon. And I just couldn't remember, you know, do I put my hand left over my right hand or my right hand over my left hand? I was really flustered and I just, you know, she was saying all the various things that she says and I didn't know whether I was, oh, am I meant to say our father or I am or, or hallelujah or I just couldn't. And she was about a foot away from me and she's really stressing me out. And, and Nick goes, what happened? I said, what do you mean what happened? I, you know, put my, my right hand over my, my left. And he said, what did you do then? And I said, well, got the host and I put it in my mouth. And he said, well, what did you do then? And he said, well, what do you mean what to do with it? And I swallowed it. <laughs> and it was at the dinner table at the restaurant three or four hours after this had happened that I actually realized I swallowed it. So that was the first thing I ever swallowed. Wow. So there you go. That That's was amazing. Uh, Crazy story. Great story, Digger. Uh, so after many months in Brisbane, um, you got to go back to John Hunter Hospital in February 2012 for a, a stoma operation to join up your small and large bowel. This would have taken just a few days. But there's some complications. You get an infection and you end up in ICU for five to six weeks. You were feeling really down. Then your uncle, Stuart Boland, uh, your dad's brother who you mentioned earlier in the podcast, comes to see you. Can you tell me what um, he says to you during this visit and just how, what a difference that made? Well, it's a, it's a mantra I now have, but, he, uh, but basically what happened is I lost hope once uh, and this was the second time that the wheels really fell off me. I was just really, really sick and I was now actually scared. I was scared of if something else got me, and I said to Uncle Stu, Uncle Stu, I've got nothing left. I've got nothing left. If, I, if something else come and, comes and gets me, I, I haven't got anything to fight. I've got nothing left. So, so this time it wasn't, I hadn't given up hope. I was actually, I was fearful of knowing where I, what it looked like. And Uncle Stu, his credit, you know, and he, he just said to me, um, he said, you know what, we're not going to worry about it tomorrow or next week or next month or even next year. He said, all we're going to worry about is the next 10 minutes. He said, we're just going to work out what we've got to do next. We're just going to work out that we're going to have to get up from this table and we're going to walk those 10 or 15 steps and we're going to sit you back down and we're going to get your strength back and then we're going to open the door and we're going to walk in the hallway and he said, that's all we're going to worry about is the next 10 minutes. And so, yeah, when I, I, I say that to a lot of people when they, you know, if they're stressing or if they've got anxiety or if they've whatever, I just say, you know, guys, all you've got to worry about is the next 10 minutes. So it's, um, yeah, so it had, without him realising it, it had a very profound um, impact on me. 
It certainly did, Digger, and it's, a, it's become a mantra in my house as well, another 10 minutes, and I know it's spread amongst our friends uh, as well. If you were to look at the, the next years of your recovery and, and to where you are today, are there any particular strategies that you've used again and again? Uh, I, I think that the, the mantra I have now is, is basically enjoy the journey of life. When I, I had a gift for all the people that, that looked after me and, and I, where I could, I went and saw them and gave them that gift. And, and Irene Caboni is the only one that I haven't been able to see and I still have a gift for her, which is a, a you know, it's a, a gift for her. And, and so I end up ringing her about, it was only about eight weeks ago. And, uh, and I said, look, I don't know how, I said, you, you may, you don't know me, but you may remember me. And I told her the story of who I was and how she saved my life. And I said, I, I don't know how to, to, say to you thank you for saving my life you know in a genuine way and she said look you know you you don't need to thank me you just need to have a good life you know i suppose that was similar to the to what i've always done which is you know i'm enjoying the journey of life so when the boys say they want to go walking i say i'm there and when the family says that there's going to be a get together i'm there and so it's you know you know that's basically what i try and do I can see you uh, through the screen here, Digger. You look great. Um, I think it'd be. Can, can you describe for listeners just how you know what is your physical health like these days? Uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm. Look, I'm. I'm. I'm good. I'm uh, still blind. You know, I'm. I lost lost my sight in my left eye. I've got a little bit of peripheral damage in my right eye, so I can see your eyes, but I can't see your face. Um, my shoulders only just. I'm. I'm, I'm Stomach. I'm, I've reconnected, so I'm, I'm, I now don't have a colostomy bag or an ileostomy bag, but I do have a, a hernia that's sort of the size of a maybe a, um, maybe a basketball or something like that. Just sort of my, my intestines hang out around out the front, so I, I wear a brace that holds me together. But look, for all intensive purposes, I've got plenty of scars. Um, so that's the physical side. The emotional side, um, I, I, I probably work too hard and, and guilty of, of, you know, all the things that we've, we're, we're guilty of when you run a business. I, I, I get tired. I, uh, I need to have my time out. You know, I need to exercise. I need to make sure I get out and walk and, and just try and rebalance things occasionally. So, yeah, but, but for all intents and purposes, I'm, I'm great. And, and how's Hannah doing? She is beautiful. My beautiful daughter is uh, 22 this year. She uh, she did suffer some injuries in the plane. Um, she's uh, had some hip injuries, uh, ongoing hip injuries. Um, but she's uh, she's doing a, a diploma of early childhood. So um, you know she's grown into a beautiful young girl. Digger, I'm going to leave it there, mate. I just want to thank you so much for sharing your incredible story. Uh, of survival and resilience. Thank you. All right, The Mindama podcast shares stories of personal resilience and mental health. If you are impacted by any of the stories shared in the podcast, please consider reaching out for support. In Australia, you may choose to call Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you are living outside of Australia, please visit befrienders.org for support services in your country. Thank you for joining us on the Mindama podcast we invite you to discover even more with the Mindama e-learning program. 
Mindama is an award-winning program being used by thousands of workers as they take on some of the world's most challenging roles. Learn more about your brain, unwind with relaxing guided mindfulness exercises, and discover simple, practical skills you can use whenever the going gets tough. Find out more at mindama.com. Purchase online, or better still, ask your boss about bringing Mindama into your workplace.